You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Hi, well, good morning, church family. Good morning. Good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, We're continuing in our study of Mark's gospel, so I want to invite you to open your Bible, if you don't have it already open, to the passage that Megan just read for us in Mark chapter 6. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to welcome you as well. And My name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here, one of our staff pastors. I get to lead us in vision and preaching, and I'm glad that you're here with us. We began a study of the Gospel of Mark back in February, and we just said we're going to make our way through Mark's Gospel this year as we're praying as a church that God would renew us as a people, that we would see Jesus, the real Jesus, for who he truly is. Maybe not for who we've come to believe he is or what others have told us about him or maybe the vibes of Jesus that we've picked up from Christians that we don't like or churches that we disagree with, but who is he really? We wanted to go to the source, and Mark is a reliable and trustworthy source on the historical person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark's gospel really kind of uh, uh, orbits around one big question. We've talked about this from the beginning, and that question is, who is Jesus? Who is he, right? And it's an important question for us because Jesus is not like a -a Build-A-Bear. Kiddos, I know that you're in the room. Any kiddos? Anybody have a -a Build-A-Bear? Anybody? Okay, good. Glad to know that I'm not the only parent that's a sucker. Um, If you've ever been to Build-A-Bear, if you don't know what Build-A-Bear is, if you've never been there, it's, um, it's it's a teddy bear that you can kind of create However you want. You, you, you pick the, the, the bear you want, do you, how stuffed do you want it, how soft, how firm, how fluffy. You can even decide the smell of your bear, what you want your bear to smell like. You like cotton candy, and you want it to smell like leather, you want it to, whatever, you pick your bear, you know, and you can decide the smell of your bear and the clothes of your bear and all of the things. You design your own bear. Um, we were on vacation a couple weeks ago, and somehow we ended up in Build-A-Bear, and I walked out with two very expensive teddy bears, not for me but for my children. Thankfully, my oldest is over teddy bears, uh, so I only had to buy two. Um, Jesus is not like a -a Build-A-Bear. You don't don't kind of decide what kind of Jesus you like, and uh, in our Western culture today, that's really common. We look at the the current cultural and political issues, and we try and decide, uh, find the Jesus that kind of smells the things that we like to smell, and, and he's about the things we are about, and the causes that interest us, and Jesus is not like a -a Build-A-Bear. Mark won't let us have that kind of Jesus. In fact, in the first century, Jesus' followers, there were many of them that kind of wanted to create and customize their own Messiah, and Jesus wouldn't fit into their boxes either. Mark wants us to to answer the question, who is Jesus, based upon the source, his words, and his actions. In fact, as we've been building in Mark's gospel, that question has gotten louder and louder. Look at what he's done. Look at what he says. Who is he? Mark doesn't want to allow us to be indifferent about Jesus or casual with Jesus. He's either who he says he is, he's Lord, he's Christ, and he demands our full allegiance, or he's a fraud. In fact, Jesus' very own disciples are going to have to answer this question. It's such a central theme in Mark's gospel, and we'll get there soon. In chapter 8, they're going to answer the question, and they're going to answer it rightly. Peter's going to confess, you are the Christ, you're the King, you're Messiah, They're going to get the question right. They're going to finally come to see him for who he is, and they're going to entrust the fullness of who they are to him. But as we find them in our text today, the disciples are in the boat again. They're in the middle of another storm with Jesus. This is becoming a trend, and they are still very much in process 
of learning to trust Jesus supremely. They don't quite yet see him in his fullness. In fact, verse 52 tells us that. Look back at Mark chapter 6, verse 52. It tells us that they do not understand, but that their hearts are hardened. I want you to know as we begin to work our way back through this text that this is no little detail. This is no little detail. In fact, verse 52, the hardness of heart amongst the disciples in this moment, excuse me, is the emphasis of this passage. It's the emphasis, right? If there's an amazing miracle that we'll talk about in a minute, Jesus walking on water, but the emphasis of the passage is not the miracle. It's the hardness of heart of the disciples, that they don't yet see him, that they don't yet trust him supremely. In fact, what we see here is an honest account from Mark, and and probably most likely from Peter to Mark, that the disciples are by no, way, by, by, no, by no means perfect, but they are human beings who are still in process. In this, in this scene, their human nature is showing. What do I mean? What do I mean? Well, every human being is born with a heart that is hard or resistant toward God. All of us, every one of us. Our human nature is to be resistant to God, to have hard hearts, um, to, to be self-sufficient people. That is our human nature. To be self-sufficient people, to be self-saving people. That is our human nature. To be self-serving people. To be people who are resistant to the good rule and reign of God, but to be self-sufficient, self-saving, self-serving people. If you don't believe me, um, just think about it. Those of you who are parents, think about like the two and three-year-old ages of your kids, right? Nobody, nobody has to teach a kid to share. I'm sorry, to not share. Nobody has to teach a kid to not share. Uh, they're self-serving, You don't have to look hard into your own heart, into your own life, to see self-sufficiency, to see self-saving, to see self-serving. It's why our world is so chaotic, because our world is filled with human beings who are self-believe that they're self-sufficient, who are on a a, uh, path to self-save, and who are self-serving. And so what we see here is that we see that the, the disciples, they have yet to truly see Jesus and trust him supremely. In fact, it's not until we see Jesus for who he truly is and that we're changed by him, that our hearts are transformed by his grace, that we learn to live a new way, a way of dependence upon God, deep trust in God, not self-sufficiency. We, we surrender to him to be saved by him, and we live lives that aren't self-serving, but that are lives for his glory and for his praise. But these disciples of Jesus, they're not yet there yet. They're still in process. Maybe some of us are not yet there either, but Jesus has called them. Jesus is committed to helping them see him clearly, and he's committed to the work of having them trust him supremely. And so he sets in to teach them a new lesson. It seems that Jesus is determined to use the sea as a place in which he will teach his disciples to trust him. I don't know if you've realized this yet, but this is this is common. They're on the sea, they're at night, they're in the middle of the storm, and Jesus wants to teach them about who he is and how they should trust him. It reminds me a lot of, in the Old Testament, God often used, uh, God used the, the wilderness to teach the ancient Israelites to trust him. It was in their wondering. It was in the wilderness. And it seems that Jesus is doing something similar here with his disciples. He uses the barren places. He uses the stormy waves of uncertainty to help us see our need for him and to see him clearly. I have two points today in the sermon, if you're taking notes. Number one, God is the God of glory. Jesus is the God of glory who is to be feared and that he is the God of grace to be trusted. Let me pray and we'll work our way back through the text. God, we come to the scriptures this morning just acknowledging that 
we are much like the disciples in, this, in the boat here. That we are often hard-hearted. That we are prone to self-sufficiency. That we think that the answers to our problems, the strength in our trials, the wisdom in this life is found within us. That's the, that is the, uh, that's the spoken word of our culture. That we can save ourselves that we can satisfy ourselves. And so, Lord, we admit that we are prone to believe that lie. And so I do ask and I do pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you truly are, the God of all glory who ought to be feared, and the God of abundant, sovereign grace who can be trusted. Would you use your word this morning by the power of your spirit to turn us from hard-heartedness and to help us to trust you and fear you as we ought. You are worthy and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, we'll see in the text that Jesus is the God of glory who ought to be feared. Let's look back at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And so we see that Jesus sends his disciples away. He's going to give them a little bit of a break. He's going to give them what at first maybe seems like a little bit of time of R&R. They've just had this miracle meal in which the disciples have served thousands of people. And he sends them away a little bit early. The text reads as if Jesus lingers a bit, that he gives a final word to the crowd while the disciples slide out. And he, set, and he tells them to set sail at night. Um, Jesus then retreats to pray. We're reminded here in the text that the power of God the Son is fueled at all times by communion with God the Father. Verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, so this is roughly daybreak, you could think of it that way, it's daybreak, and 4, 5, 6 a.m., by the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Um, it appears as if Jesus ends his time of prayer, and he sees the disciples are having some difficulty making their way across the Sea of Galilee. We're told in the text that they're sailing against the wind, which means that this journey is taking them longer than it otherwise would. Um, no, any professional um, fisherman, which these guys were, anybody that spent any time on the Sea of Galilee would know about the winds of the Sea of Galilee. And so they're sailing into the wind. It's taking them longer than it should. Um, um, it's harder than it otherwise should have been. Um, it's clear that Jesus sees that, that they're making their way painfully, the text says. So it's clear that it's costing them more emotional and physical energy than a normal sail across the sea in the evening ought to. It's painful. Um, and it's important that we realize that in antiquity, no professional fisherman would set sail into a headwind on the Sea of Galilee. Like, nobody would do this. It doesn't make any sense. Um, sometimes it would take up to uh, double the amount of time to get across the sea if you, rather than just waiting for the, either the winds to die down or the winds to change directions. The only reason that anybody would sail right into a headwind would be if they absolutely had to, if they had no other choice. 
And it seems clear from the text that this is the case for the disciples, that they have no other option. Why? Well, because look at verse 45. We're told that Jesus sends them, that Jesus made them. The Greek there is that Jesus necessitated it. It's one of these situations where it's most likely Jesus is trying to get some time alone. He's going to dismiss the crowds. He wants to pray. He certainly has a plan. He knows what he's up to. And he tells them, hey, guys, I want you to sail across the sea. I'll meet you over there later. And they're like, what? He's like, yeah, go. Now? The wind? Yeah, go. Take off. I'll meet you there later. And so there's, there's no doubt. You can just imagine this. You can imagine that there's probably a bit of frustration here. They're probably thinking, what are we doing? What is he doing? Maybe they're getting a little bit sick of this. They're getting a little bit tired. Like, this is harder than it should be. Like, we're the pros here. We know about being on the water. Not this rabbi from Nazareth who was a carpenter. Um, this is exhausting. We're fighting the winds. What are we doing? What is he doing? This shouldn't be this hard. Why are we trusting this guy with our life anyway? This is probably what's happening in the boat. They're making their way painfully emotionally, physically exhausted into the winds. And boy, does this day at sea for the disciples feel a lot like an object lesson for life. Amen? <laughs> Maybe you've been here. Maybe you have given your allegiance to Jesus and you've entrusted yourself to him and some years have gone by and you're kind of wondering some of those same questions. Like, can I even trust him? Like, why is this so hard? Life is costing me way more than I thought it would. And I'm not talking about inflation. I'm talking about following Jesus. This is costing me more than I thought. This is harder than I thought it would be. It's taking longer than I thought it would take. This is not easy. Maybe you've been here. I know that I was here this week. Um, the last couple of weeks have been incredibly difficult. They've been really difficult weeks on mul uh, multiple reasons, multiple levels. There have been some really hard leadership lessons We've had to learn as a church. There have been people in this church that have been experiencing some, uh, some significant sickness and suffering. Um, it's been a hard week. I explained to some pastors in our Redeemer Network this week. I just reached out and asked for prayer, and I said, it just feels like it's been two weeks of avalanche of hard. I sent that message on Thursday. And then Friday, uh, my daughter woke up with a really, really high fever. Fever wouldn't go away, wouldn't come down, stayed 104, 105 all day long, go to the doctor, Doctor's like, ah, maybe just a virus, go home. Okay. Uh, fever stays high. Go to the urgent care. Urgent care doctor's like, I think something's seriously wrong. She should probably go to the ER. We go to the ER, find out that my five-year-old has appendicitis, and then she's having surgery, and it's just been one of those weeks, and she's home now. Thank God. Thank some of you guys who prayed for us over the weekend, uh, but we came home last night preaching today. You know, we're like, Jesus, this is harder than it should be. It's taking longer than it should take. Can we even trust you? You sent us, sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? That you've just sent us into a headwind. What are you doing? And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you are experiencing some of these same things right now. Parenting feels much more difficult than it should feel. You know, those teenage years, and you're just like, God, what are you doing with my child? Or maybe it's 3 a.m., and you stand over the, uh, the crib with a fussing baby that won't go back to sleep. You're just, this is harder than it should be. Jesus, can I even trust you? Where are you? thought you were the prince of peace. My life feels hectic. I feel exhausted. Maybe for you it's work. You work all week long. 
and you work hard and you've tried to give your life and your career and your service to Jesus and serve him, but yet you sit down every month to pay bills and it just never feels like there's enough money, the money that you need, the provision that God is supposed to provide. You're like, where is it, God? It's harder than it should be. Maybe you finally recover from some sickness or ailment in your body only a few weeks later to have problems again. This text, these disciples in the boat sent by Jesus into a headwind, it feels a lot like the human experience. It feels a lot like my experience as a follower of Jesus. And if we aren't careful, if we aren't paying attention and attentive to our souls, what can start to happen to us is that we can start to get hard-hearted, like verse 52. We can start to get hard-hearted. We can say, Jesus, what are you doing? Can I even trust you? Do I even want to trust you if you keep sending me into things like this? And those words and those lies of self-sufficiency that we talked about earlier and self-saving and self-serving starts to kick in. And this is why I love the Bible. (laughs) I love the Bible because we start seeing in the Bible these things that are true of us in texts like this. This is why I love the Bible, because we start seeing why God is a gracious God. We start to see why Jesus does what he does, why he sends those he loves into the winds, because of what it reveals. Because God loves us so much that he won't let us live lives enslaved to lies of self-sufficiency and self-saving and self-serving. You see, Jesus doesn't try. The Bible does not hide this fact from us, by the way. The Bible never promised you that life would be void of suffering. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that, um, that because we were, worthy to call to be, to, we were called worthy enough to be called to believe in him, that we might also suffer with him. That's why I love the Bible, the realism of the Bible. Jesus, the Bible doesn't try and pretend that Jesus isn't intentionally sending his disciples into a headwind. He is, and he has a purpose in it. He doesn't try and protect his disciples from difficulty and pain. Instead, he sends them into it. Why does he do this? He does this because he loves us enough to expose self-sufficiency, to show us that we are not self-saviors, to convince us that a life of self-serving is indeed a dead-end road that never satisfies the hungers of our souls. And maybe some of you are here. Maybe you are painfully trying to hold it all together to make your way through the winds and the waters of life that isn't as easy as you'd hoped. You're considering abandoning ship, being done with Jesus and his mission, finding a -a Build-A-Bear Jesus that better suits your life and your opinions and the culture. Maybe life isn't as wonderful as you dreamed it would be. But don't miss verse 48. Verse 48 is the good news in the text. Verse 48 is the why in the text. Jesus lets them struggle on their own for a bit. But then what does he do? He pursues them. He sees them, first of all. He sees them. He pursues them. And he does it in glorious fashion. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, 1 Peter 5.10. 1 Peter 5.10 says, it's a promise. It says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you into his eternal glory, will himself restore you. Jesus comes after them. And he comes after them in glorious fashion. Check this out. First, we're told that he comes, he comes after them at dawn. That's such a cool detail. Mark didn't have to give us that detail. But he comes after them at dawn. When is night the darkest? Right before daybreak. 
<laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like he lets them struggle. He lets them wear themselves out. And then he shows up at dawn. The fourth watch of night. Then he appears. And he doesn't just appear, but he appears to them in glory. He appears to them in glorious fashion. And the text tells us that it's terrifying. That they all see him and that they're all filled with terror. I want you to know that that's actually the point of this scene. We often can kind of look at this text and get a bit caught up in Jesus walking on water. There's like Discovery Channel specials. There's all kind of stuff out there about like, did Jesus really walk on the water? Was it maybe a sandbar? Was it extra cold during the spring and the, and the water was frozen over and he walked across ice? Like people get super caught up in this. In fact, I even remember when I was a kid, we had a swimming pool in my backyard. And I remember being a kid and, and, and hearing this story. And then in Matthew's gospel, in the same scene, it's not in Mark's gospel, so I'm not going to talk about it. But in Ma- well, I'm talking about it. But in Matthew's gospel, he calls Peter to come out on the water once he gets there. And, and I remember thinking, um, maybe I've trust Jesus. I remember standing on the edge of the swimming pool, like, Jesus, I trust you. <laughs> Boom sinking, you know? Like, we, we just get so caught up with the, the walking on the water. But I want you to know that that's not the point. The point. This is actually just a detail. The point of the scene is that Jesus shows up to them in the darkest moment in glory, in glorious fashion, defying the laws of nature. They see him, and they think he's a ghost. He shows up in glory, and they are terrified. Why? Who is this Jesus? Mark says he is the God of glory, and we ought to fear him, not blame him, fear him. Look back at verse 48. He's not a Build-A-Bear. We ought not be casual with him. We ought to fear him. 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass them by. I want you to underline that phrase. Mark's not done showing us the glory of Jesus. He meant to pass them by. Just about every commentator that I read this week makes it clear that this phrase is shouting to us, Exodus thirty-three twenty-two. He meant to pass them by. What is Exodus thirty-three twenty-two? Well, it's where we find Moses encountering the glory of God, the weightiness, the awe, the power and might of God. Listen to Exodus 33, 19 through 23. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And he will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He is the Lord. He is God. He does as he pleases. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by or passes you by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Do you see the dots that Mark is trying to connect here? The God of all glory, Jesus, meant, meant to pass them by in glorious fashion. Who is this Jesus that pursues hard-hearted sinners and strugglers? Who is this that seeks to save those he calls, to teach them 
to trust him in all circumstances, in all situations. He is the very Lord of glory. The very Lord of glory. Do you see what a powerful claim this is? The Bible tells us that the Lord of glory, the one who is so glorious that mere sinful humans cannot even see his face or they will die, that this Lord of glory has come near to us, that he's entered into human existence in the person of Jesus, that he lives he lived among us, that he healed the sick and he knocked out demons, that he feeds the hungry and multiplies food, and now he walks on water. Who is this Jesus? He's the God of glory who has come to pursue sinners, hard-hearted sinners. This is why there's no other religion like Christianity, no other religion on the planet like Christianity, no other news like the good news of the gospel, that God does not stand at a distance from sinful human beings. Instead, he comes near to us. And his glory, the glory of Jesus, as Mark's gospel continues, the glory of Jesus will be most clearly and powerfully displayed in his death and in his resurrection. The glory of Jesus will be put on display and poured out as he experiences Roman crucifixion, the most excruciating and the slowest way to die, the If there's ever a headwind of death, it would be Roman crucifixion. The Lord of glory did this so that sinners like you and me could be saved. It was the only way because we're not capable of saving ourselves. We're not self-sufficient. And perhaps that's the point of the storms, to remind us that we need a Savior, that we need a Lord of glory who is a Savior. But he's not only the Lord of glory. Mark wants us to see that there's more He is the Lord of glory, and he is the God of grace. Look at verse 50. He's the God of grace. We ought to fear him, but we also ought to trust him because he's a gracious God. Verse 50, for for they all saw him, and they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. The Lord of glory gets into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. What a moment. What a moment. I felt a moment similar to this while we were sitting in the uh, the operating room, or the waiting room, while my daughter was going under anesthesia and having surgery uh, yesterday. I felt a moment of this, like the chaos of like, I'm in this headwind. God, what is happening? This is crazy. (laughs) Um, we just sent our five-year-old daughter back and just signed all these waivers, like, anesthesia, yes, I know that she could die. And da, da, da. You know, all these things. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about? Like, what? okay, see you later. And I'm sitting in there, and I'm just in, we're kind of in this headwind, and then all, this, all, all of a sudden, like, I just felt the prayer of the saints. And it was like the Lord of glory just got into the boat. <laughs> Peace. What a Savior. That the Lord of glory, the God of glory, is also the God of grace, who can be trusted who gets into the boat with us. Do you see the contrast? Jesus standing outside the boat, blazing in glory as he walks on the water, defying the laws of nature, and yet he's the same Lord who enters into the boat and brings peace. The one who we ought to fear is also the one that we can trust. And again, Jesus' words are significant. First, he says, take heart. It's a word of comfort. Take heart. It's meant to give courage. Some of you need to hear that word this morning that word of comfort where Jesus says, take heart, have courage, because you know the Lord of glory and the Lord of grace. And then there's another word that Jesus says, take heart. He says, it is I. It is I. Underline that in your Bible, if your Bible underliner. 
it is I, again, Mark is leaving some breadcrumbs here for us. There's another echo of the Exodus story here. This time it's Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. After God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt in miraculous fashion, there's a water crossing, which is important here, by the way. He parts the Red Sea and he leads them through. And these generations of slaves are like, who is this God that just overcame Pharaoh and set us free? Who is he? And Moses asked that question. They want to know, if I'm going to lead the people, who do I tell them you are? And God answers him in Exodus chapter 3. He tells him who he is. He shows up in glory and he gives him a name. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is your name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Who is the God that appears in glory to save us? That's the question of the Exodus. Who is this God that appears in glory and awe? The God that we should fear. Who is he that appears to save us? I am. The I am. I want you to know that when you render the Hebrew of the Old Testament to the Greek, to the Greek of the New Testament, I am who I am and it is I are almost verbatim. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? They're terrified. And he says, take courage. The God of glory, the creator is also the redeemer. He's also your savior. He's your rescuer. Don't be afraid. I am. It is I. Jesus is making the point here. Whether his disciples understood it in the moment or they connect the dots later, his message is clear. He's not a mere human Messiah. He's not simply a miracle worker or a mighty teacher or a wise prophet. I am the Lord, the self-existing, the eternal one, the creator, the God of your father's is the Redeemer. Jesus says, this is who I am. He's the God of rescuing grace who shows up when we think we can't take it anymore. And he's a God of grace that we can trust in every moment, in every storm, with all things. And so I want to close by just putting it all together. I want to just put it all together, what Mark has been giving us in chapter 6. Mark gives us this story and the surrounding details, and he's saying to us again, who is Jesus? He's like, look at, look at, look, look at his life. Look at what he's done. Who is he? Who do you, how do you explain it? Who do you say that he is? And Mark is showing us who he is. He's the one who feeds wandering and wanting people with compassion. He's the one who goes to great lengths to rescue those he calls. He goes to great lengths to reveal his glory and his grace so that we would never doubt him. What a savior. He's a God who doesn't stay at a distance and makes us earn or prove our way back to him. He's not a God who says, hey, uh, cheer up, buttercup. <laughs> He's not a God who says, figure it out. He's not a God who says, climb this ladder, find the strength within yourself. It's not who he is. He doesn't stay at a distance, but he comes near and he sits with us in our storms by his spirit. He's a God who confronts our unbelief and calls us to trust him supremely and repent of hard-heartedness. He's a God who takes us through the storms of this life and he invites us and empowers us to keep doing 
ministry with him on the other side. We see that at the end of this text. See, like no other section in Mark is Mark so clear about the identity of Jesus. It's so clear, especially on the backdrop of the Exodus story. Mark is telling us, you don't get to define Jesus. He's not a -a Build-A-Bear. You don't define him. He's the God of glory, and you ought to fear him rightly. You ought to have awe and worship and wonder. He's the God of grace who comes near to you, and you ought to trust him. You can trust him and trust yourself to him. He will meet you in the storm, and he will bring you to the other side. And so as we close, I just want to ask you, where are you with Jesus today? How do you see him? How do you see him? How will you respond to him? Perhaps there are some of you this morning that are like the crowds that we looked at last week. You are hungrier than maybe you realized. There's a, there's a hunger in your soul. And I just want to call you to see Jesus, the one who feeds and satisfies, the one who nourishes us in every situation and in every circumstance. Would you see him? Would you come to him? Would you turn to him for who he is? Maybe there are some of you who are like the disciples in our text today. You are exhausted and you are tired. You are in a storm. Maybe you even feel like God is the one who has sent you into the storm, and maybe he has. And you're doing all the rowing, and you're questioning God. You're wondering if you could trust him. I just want to invite you to see Jesus, to see the one who pursues you, even when you're exhausted and tired, the one who comes after you, the one who will surprise you with his nearness and with his rescue. And I want to invite you, will you trust him? Will you trust that when you get to the other side, you will be able to look back and you will see him for who he is and what he's done for you? And then finally, I know without a doubt that there are some of you who are here this morning who you cannot get away from verse 52. Just look back at it one more time. There's some of you who are here this morning that can't get away from it. It tells us that their hearts were too hard to take it in. Their hearts were too hard to see and to savor all that Jesus was doing around them. I want to ask you, have you grown unimpressed with the glory and the grace of Jesus? Have you? Has Jesus become too familiar to you? You know, for Jesus' first disciples, they looked at the food miracle that Jesus had just done as just another miracle. It stirred no affection no awe in their hearts for Jesus. They just moved on. You know, it's like, okay, you get in the boat, on to the kind of the next stupid thing that Jesus wants us to do, on to that next task that God has for us. You know, there's multiple ways to wander from God. The rebellious person wanders from him into sinful living. And Jesus pursues us, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You sought me. Jesus seeks us. And then there's another way to, to, to wander from God, and it's into hard-heartedness. It's into just religious activity. It's into, okay, God, on to the next thing that I'm supposed to do out of duty. And if that's you this morning, if you have maybe experienced some hard-heartedness and you are not really seeing the glory of God in such a way that it stirs your affections and you're not experiencing the grace of God in ways that renews your soul, I just want to invite you. We're going to respond here in a moment. We're going to sing. And we're going to take communion together. I just want you to know that the the altars will be, will be open. And I just want to encourage you just to confess that to, to, to Jesus this morning. Just to confess to him. I think that my heart has grown a bit hard, that I'm a bit um, unimpressed, that your glory and your grace just feel stale and old to me. Bring that into the light. Confess that 
this morning and even just ask him, ask him to remind you in a real and personal ways who he is and to renew your spirit. Tell him I'm ready to receive renewal, Jesus. And I believe that the spirit of God will breathe upon you this morning and will nourish you and will soften and awaken your heart in the same way that he has done for his first disciples. He does that for us again and again and again when we come to him honestly and broken before him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word that so clearly tells us who you are. It won't allow us to define you in our own terms. Calls us to see you for who you are and submit to you as the God of glory and the God of grace. Lord, we confess that we are prone to self-sufficiency, to self-saving and to self-serving. And we thank you that you meet us and you surprise us with your glory and with your grace. And I pray that as we enter into a time of response this morning, that you would do just that, that you would show us, that you would remind us, that you would speak to us, that you would stir our hearts as we sing and as we pray and as we take communion. If there's anyone here this morning that is far from you, I pray, Jesus, that they would come to you for the first time and that they would be surprised by your nearness and your realness. They would be awakened to trust you supremely with their life. And I pray, Father, that for each of us, any of us that have grown hard-hearted and even cold-hearted towards you, God, that you would awaken us, that you would continue to renew us, Lord, and to give us eyes that see you for who you are, that fear you rightly, and that trust you supremely. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.